this summer with AC Pro and O'Reilly Auto Parts. Right now, get a $15 O'Reilly Auto Parts gift card after mail-in rebate with the purchase of select AC Pro ready-to-use refrigerant products that include a hose and gauge. Beat the heat before you hit the road with AC Pro at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. In the week that Andrew Scott joined the cast of his Dark Materials, the Strictly Pros hit the headlines again, and the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire coughing scandal is going to be turned into a drama, this is Series Linked, with me, Emma Bullimore, from the TV Times, and Mark Jeffries from The Mirror, the podcast for TV fans by TV fans. Coming up, we'll be chatting with Robert Bathurst about New Dad's Army and another box set to watch before you die. But first of all, Jeffers, Sunday night is the big bank holiday drama face-off. Very exciting. It's Sanderton up against Peaky Blinders. Let's take Sanderton first. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, this is a Jane Austen unfinished novel, I think. It's basically all set on the coastline. It's Sanderton itself. Um, yeah, it's a big period drama. Quite an unusual cast, I think. Um, Chris Marshall is playing one of the lead roles as Tom Parker. I don't think I've seen him sort of take on something like this at front and centre of such like a period drama type thing, and I think he does quite well. It sort of all starts with a big a big cart accident, not a car accident. <laughs> yeah, um, it's all classic period drama. Yeah. Top hats and everything. What did you think of it? Well, I like it, but I like period dramas anyway. But I thought this, is, I was excited because it's Jane Austen's book, adapted by Andrew Davis. He's the guy who did the original... BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, which is amazing. So I thought this was going to be good. And it hasn't really let me down. I've only seen an episode one so far, but I really enjoyed it. And, and Anne Reid absolutely steals each and every scene that she is in. She is fantastic. But it is, it's a bit of an unusual premise, isn't it? It just seems like they're trying to sort of revamp a seaside resort or start it from scratch. And there's lots of people trying to make money amongst those. Anne Reid's character, she plays Lady Denham. She seems to have a lot of money invested with Chris Marshall's character, Tom Parker. And they're trying to sort of tear up the the seaside resort i guess the period drama equivalent of the makeover of margate at the moment something <laughs> like that i guess and at the center of it you've got this character charlotte hayward who's played by uh, rose williams i think she's a really good um, actress I haven't seen much of her before i thought she was really good and she sort of by chance ends up on the coast um, after sort of bumping into chris marshall in this car accident that, that he has it's a bit of her journey i guess in, in terms of opening her eyes she seems to have lived quite a sheltered life and she comes down to this coast. You're almost watching it through her eyes, I think, in terms of everything that's happening. There is quite a lot of comedy in it. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And yeah, for once, uh, this is a period drama that I might actually watch. Way, what is it about it that makes you actually think, yeah, it's decent? I think Anne Reid's character's good. She's got a touch of the Maggie Smith and Downton. I think it's quite a good start. So you've got her sort of being quite cutting. You've got Chris Marshall's character being sort of flamboyant. And his family... It's got a real mixture of, of sort of siblings of are all different sort of personalities. And yeah, I think Rose Williams as Charlotte Hayward's really good as well. I just think she seems quite innocent and it's quite interesting to know where it's going to go. I've only seen the first episode as well and, and I feel like there's lots of possibilities. I, I'm not really sure what's going to happen next. I think it ticks a lot of boxes. You know, a ball in episode one, brilliant. But I think it's got quite a tough job going up against Peaky Blinders. This is season five, but people still love the show and it is gorgeous and cinematic what did you make of the start of this new series yeah i mean i haven't watched a lot of peaky blinders so i, I don't think i'm necessarily the best person to, to say whether this is better than previous series as you point out i think it does feel really classy it feels almost luxurious at the start quite filmic and everything just really seems to revolve around Cillian murphy's character thomas shelby i'm sure that's the case normally but 
He's just got a huge screen presence. And in this case, it's all about a, a Wall Street crash. And there's lots of trouble for the family and, and the gang in terms of financial trouble and how they're going to overcome that. It felt to me like um, there was a lot happening. There's a lot of drama around at the moment where you might have to wait 20 minutes or for something for there to be a big moment or 30 minutes for something big to happen. And it feels like in Peaky Blinders, there's lots of action. There's always something happening. There's some big, strong characters, not just him. There's Helen McCrory's character, Aunt Polly. And it just felt almost like I was at home watching a movie. And so it's really strong. It's a real shame in some ways that both of these are on at the same time. We've had, you know, not a lot on for the summer as per usual when it comes to drama. And then it gets to the Sunday night and we've got two at nine o'clock that I think both are worth watching. That's what ITV Plus one is for. Or, you know, or take the other one. I think there's definitely watch both. Because like you say, this isn't self-indulgent, Peaky Blinders. That's exactly what you're saying. That sometimes, yeah, it looks glorious and it's got a fantastic soundtrack, but it doesn't go anywhere. And I find that really annoying. Whereas this, I did feel was pacey enough. It kept me hooked. But yeah, the performances are brilliant. Just lovely. But I also really enjoyed Sanderton. And sometimes I think... You know, that's more of a sort of hug on the TV, Sanderton. Less happens, it's easier to follow, I would say. Yeah, I think both of them are going to be real treat for viewers. So now we're very pleased to welcome into the studio to discuss the new episodes of Dad's Army that are going to be on over this bank holiday weekend, Robert Bathurst. Hello. Hi, hello, hello, hello. Hi, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank for you. coming in. My pleasure, lovely. It's yeah. a very exciting project. It is exciting. And it was one fraught with potential dangers as well. Because, I mean, who wants to see other people do Dad's Army apart from Arnold Ridley and Arthur Lowe and John LeMessurier and everybody like that? Is there any point in trying to recreate it? And the only point of recreating it is that this great thing that the Dad's Army completists have feel bereft of the fact that three episodes they've never been able to see and since 1968. So did you wrestle with that a bit? Did you think, oh, should I not do it? I re- well, I wrestled with it until I realised that, that it was all about the lost. I mean, when they said there's a Dad's Army project, I'd rather grown because there's been previous Dad's Army outings, some of them not written by Croft and Perry, some of them just reimaginings of what the characters might do in different situations. And uh, I haven't actually seen those, so I can't comment on whether they're any good or not. But I thought, in principle, they were sort of creatively bankrupt. And also, there has been a recent sort of flurry of, oh, gosh, we can't think of anything new, so let's do something that's been on before. Uh, a whole series of those uh, slated programs, which I also thought was worthless. I mean, again, I haven't seen them, so I can't judge. But in principle, I thought they were worthless. When I heard that this was a Dad's Army project, I went, oh, gosh. Then it turns out, as I don't know if your audience will, will be aware, that there were 80 episodes made, um, six or so of them in the 1968 series, second series, in black and white were um, deleted by the BBC engineering department who decided that the tapes could be used again. And uh, three of those have been recovered in various forms on film and things, but uh, these three have never been discovered. And here we are now having remade those. And so Dad's Army fans can see all 80 shows, all 80 scripts, but not all with the same people, sadly. And are you a big fan of the sitcom anyway? I am a fan of the sitcom. I was, from a very early age, a fan of it. It was, I think it's beautifully constructed. I think it's caricatures, but it still managed to be characters. I think they really cleverly do types which with characters that you sort of can immediately identify with. I think that uh, in terms of construction and in terms of setup, development and payoff in the sort of classic manner of a sitcom, they're brilliantly, brilliantly done. And having watched them a lot yourself as well, was there anything you tried to avoid doing when you were shooting? I guess you don't want to be sort of a caricature or a copy or a mimic, I suppose, of the previous stuff. Well, how did you kind of go about playing the role? Well, it was interesting for me because I'd had to, uh, I had tackled John LeMessurier before. There was a biopic of uh, Hattie Jakes and John LeMessurier and Hattie's uh, lover, John, 
who he moved into their house and uh, Le Measurer didn't leave the house. He just moved, <laughs> moved into the spare room. And so I, I had him to play before. And so I'd worked on him, but didn't think of Sergeant Wilson when I was doing that. And I think what was important with this one for me was not to think of John Lemaitre when I was playing Sergeant Wilson. And there is a difference. So there were lots about John Lemaitre and his hideous, rackety private life, which I had to ignore when playing Sergeant Wilson because I knew quite a bit about his, pre- his private life. The danger was just to fall into playing the Lemaitre, as indeed was the danger of playing Sergeant Wilson when I was playing Lemaitre himself. Did you just sit and watch loads and loads of episodes again to remind yourself or, d- or was that distracting? No, I saw, I saw quite a few. I got the box set. I haven't say I haven't been through all seventy-seven of the existing <laughs> ones yet, but now I did. I just wanted to see, just to just to remind myself because I'd looked at Le Measure very closely for the previous thing. This time I did look very closely at what uh, Sergeant Wilson. What was it like looking in the mirror in that costume on that set? Did it feel strange? Yeah, I mean, I'm a different shape to him. I don't look exactly like him or anything like that. Yeah, being on the set, yes, it was. But it, but you see, you have to shed that. You had to do all the prep and then forget about it. Because otherwise you're just too hidebound, you're too performing like a thunderbird. If the strings are being pulled the whole time, then that's all you'll get. So all the prep I did, or tried to do, beforehand was done. And you try and sort of bed it in, in that sort of way that actors do. And then let it run. Forget about the impression. And is there a lot of work that you did with Kevin McNally, isn't it, who plays Captain Mannering? Mm. I always think Mannering and Wilson, they're sort of like a duo, it feels like. Particularly in that first episode of, of The Ones We're Watching. I feel like you two are playing off each other a lot. So did you do a lot of pre-work or rehearsals of you two together? Well, I mean, uh, Kevin doesn't need any winding up, you know. I mean, he's a, <laughs> he was great. He was actually uh, on it. And uh, his Captain Mannering was, was magnificent. No, we, I think we both understood uh, the territory. We didn't workshop it, I have to say. <laughs> and we'd both done a lot of uh, live theatre and sitcoms. So you, it, was, it was fun working with him, actually. He knew, he knew exactly about what we should be doing. Because there are some big scenes that would have required a lot of choreography thinking of they're trying to dampen down a fire. Yes. You know, that, that must have required quite a lot of pre-planning. Huge amount of pre-planning. And so we, a bomb falls through the roof of the church hall. And, of course, then you get special effects people and take over. And there's a lot of cutting away. The studio audience are only in there for sort of, two hours or so. So a lot of prep went on there. You do pre-record the more complicated sequences. So in the sequence where the fire was running in the, in the village hall, we did a certain amount of pre-recording in that, which was chopped into the live action. The first night you were in front of an audience, the reports say that it went crazy for it. I'm sure there were lots of big Dad's Army fans in there. Did that help to give you confidence for the rest of filming? Did you have a good idea then that you were already on to a winner? Well, that was fascinating was that we had to persuade three different audiences in three different weeks. There's bound to be scepticism. There'll be scepticism amongst your listeners. There'll be scepticism amongst any of the fans who watch it over the next few days. And they'll all go, oh yeah, like that. Oh yeah, so what? Yeah, let's see what they can do. And we faced that every Friday. We, did, we filmed them on Friday evenings. So we had a new audience of people we had to persuade. Yeah, that was a challenge. That was enjoyable. There was no presumption that what we were doing was going to work. And who knows, quite, and it's good to be broadcast yet, so who knows whether it has worked. There was a palpable air of the audience just crossing their arms and going, oh, yeah, let's have a look, okay. And there was also, gratifyingly, a sense of them feeling, oh, you get the atmosphere, I mean, they get a feeling that it's in reasonable hands. And then it took off. People got what we were up to, understood the spirit in which it was being made, understanding that we're not them, we can't be them, we can't be as good as them, but this is all you've got, mate but we've got these scripts which we're going to sell to you. And then they were in on it, and off they went. The atmosphere in the studio uh, was great. I always slightly mistrust the atmosphere in the studio. I've done stuff where you think, 
it went really well in the studio and then <laughs> it simply doesn't carry. So we don't know whether it's going to work or not. I think it's got a chance. The sort of the key people, it would be interesting to see whether they, whether they go for it, are people who'd never seen it before and people who expect a lot from it. In addition to Penny Croft, who is David Croft's daughter, I'd be very interested to know what she, whether she thinks it's been a worthwhile exercise. And it's a funny thing, Dad's Army, because I don't know if it will get commissioned now because it's, you know, it's very male heavy and it's in a studio and it's not the sort of fashion for comedy now. But when it's on TV, the repeats just get huge ratings, higher than a lot of new stuff. What, what do you think is going on there? Do you think it's just a kind of timeless comedy and that there should be more things in that vein? Yeah, I wonder if um, you commissioned now. I mean, it was old fashioned when it started. It was filmed in 1967. It was sort of conceived in sort of mid 60s, 20 years after the war. So it was already old-fashioned. As with a lot of sitcoms, it had a really unpromising premise. Two men in a scrapyard, father and son bickering. That's not really a very good pitch for a, for a sitcom. People behind the lines in, in the French Resistance, not really an idea. For, not, you should try and sell that one to, to anyone. Dad's Army, likewise, had a, a, an aspect of army life, uh, sort of civilian and army life, which, which no one had really heard of. It wasn't really something that people understood. It uh, wasn't part of their experience, necessarily. And they had to create the world. They had to reflect the world and create their own world of that. But uh, certainly, um, when Dad's Army is repeated, it, it does seem to have an audience of all ages. What would you say to the sceptics who watch the normal Dad's Army and are thinking about giving this a miss? From what you're saying, with the audience that were there, you just asked them to really give it a chance, I suppose. You have to surrender to anything you watch. You have to be prepared. To, you have to be generous enough to give it time. I think it's of curiosity value. Whether it makes them laugh or not is up to them. It's of curiosity value to see other people hacking around and trying to do it. It's a curiosity value to those who do know it to see what those scripts might have been like had they been when they were done by the original people. I would say, yeah, 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 yeah give it a go. I mean, the sitcom may, may not be your thing. You have to, yeah, have to just sort of relax and enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about revivals. We have to talk to you about the revival of Cold Feet because mm. it was dead and buried as yeah. far as everyone was concerned. Then it has come back for many series and people absolutely loving it again. Yeah. Did you ever expect it to come back? No, no, like not at all, no. I mean, um, we did the five series back in the day. We did the pilot in 96. It's the year that the Spice Girls released Wannabe. It's a classic course, year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the... That's the, that's the, the, two the cold feet the, and the... The, spot, the, yeah, the I mean. benchmark. Yes, exactly. I love that. Yeah, no, it, it was, an unlike, again, an unlikely thing because I thought the script was really well written. I thought it was really well written. And I was sort of not proselytizing about it, but I thought this is good stuff, rather like I didn't, there's a series I did called Joking Apart, and I'm still proselytizing about Joking Apart because it was magnificent stuff. But of course, you get people looking blank in response to it because they haven't seen it. But anyway, Cold Feet was very well written, and people were trying to... I was, I was happy to talk about it to anybody who wanted to talk about it in the early days. And so I never thought it would go to series. Uh, and yet it did. And uh, and off we went. And then we made five and it suddenly became... What was fun is that how sort of fashion, how things develop. It was deemed to be the new friends for about one episode, really. I think for four, but in, in the run-up, nobody has the language for originality. Nobody can say it's an original piece of work about six people in Manchester and how they get on. They had to say it's the new friends, which it wasn't because we're not in the same room. We're a disparate group. And it was, had very little in common with friends other than it had six sentient human beings in it. The people twigged that it wasn't. And then very soon afterwards, people were talking about, the, you know, what's the new cold feet? You know, everyone has to always make new programs in the light of what's been on before. Uh, and so it was interesting to see what had started off as being an indescribable show to anybody. Then people were using it as a yardstick for future shows. When you heard it might be coming back, did you say yes straight away? Did you need to see scripts, you know, when it was being revived, were you in straight away? 
no, I, well, I had lunch with Mike Bullen. He, sort of, he said they think I think there's juice in this, you know, because, because these characters are now older. In the gap, there's, there's been a bit of history going on there. You don't know what's gone on. Life has moved on for them. Could be a chance to, to see, see what happens to them. I mean, the first five years we did, we were clinging to our youth. And then by the time we revived it, that was over. I mean, that was finished. So, <laughs> so you, you sort of pretty much have to say, right, okay, well, what next in life? You know, it's good because it caught that transition between people clinging on to youth and middle youth and then throwing up, running up the white flag, but determined to still just keep on going. And also it did that thing really cleverly that, that you're not wise, you're not a moral philosopher when you hit 50. You're still rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and also it does the thing of, it's really funny, but some of the moments, you know, obviously... John Thompson did an incredible job with that suicide storyline. And David sitting in his car is absolutely yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes to some dark places as well. Well, it does. and It allows that. I mean, I'm very resistant to the idea of shows being dominated by issues. And I think other continuing serials do that better. What Cold Feet at its best, it dances between comedy and, and difficult stuff, or sometimes in the same sentence. It keeps you guessing and tripped up. There's a danger of things, issues making it too, too creaky. And too plonky. Okay, it's moving. People get, getting people moved by them is one thing. Manipulating people in a way which is not the purpose of comedy drama, really. And you know, leave that to soaps. So you, you don't want it to get like that. Where's it going to go in the next series? Have you, have you got the script? Is there anything you could tell us at all? My least favourite word in, in all drama, all media, is story... Well, actually, I've got many f- least favourite <laughs> words. Storyline. Actually, storyline. Storyline is the skeleton. Storyline is what you hang the character and the flesh of a, of a, of a story on, the reactions, the interplay of the characters and all that. Like that. Storyline is just, just the, the scaffolding. People are obsessed with storyline. They think they've seen the show just because they hear, read a, a storyline digest of what the show is. And what's interesting isn't just the storyline. Actually, that's, of course, crucial to it. But I just think it's an, it's an overused term and people concentrate more on storyline than they do on the push and pull of characters. To use Mike's phrase, do you think there's plenty of juice still left in it? Would you like to carry on doing it for it a few my, years? It was my phrase, and giving it to Mike. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, do. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, looking, looking at what we start filming in a couple of weeks, and I've seen the first two scripts. Yes, it is. It's just like it's open-ended like life is. Whether we go on with it or not is another matter. But in terms of what the show can provide, are then the twists and turns and, and vagaries of ordinary living. And do you like playing David? He's such a unique sort, isn't he? He's like just I, there's something about him that you can't help feeling sorry for him. But sometimes you think, oh, David, come on! Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's learnt the language of attachment too late in his life, really. I mean, the whole thing with Karen—that's his his comedy and his tragedy. It's his tragedy, really, because he's he's he never really quite realised what he had when he was when he was with Karen, and and when they split. The, the sort of the yearnings, the, the middle-aged yearnings have gone to bash him. And, but he's also supported and has always been supported by a rampant self-delusion, <laughs> which I love playing. <laughs> and the audience can see what's going on and he can't. It's great. Thanks very much, Robert. And you can catch Dad's Army this weekend on Gold or catch up on the UK TV player. So, a couple of documentaries to talk about as well this week, because we didn't talk about Kathy Burke yet, which is very remiss of us, and this is absolutely brilliant. If you haven't seen All Woman, Jeffers, kind of set it up for us. It's Kathy Burke talking about all different aspects of being a woman, I suppose, and she goes out across the country, she's speaking to lots of other both celebrity and non-celebrity women of all different ages, shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds. What's really refreshing is she is just saying it as she sees it. This isn't been heavily edited or airbrushed. This is someone who I think a lot of people really like and respect, Kathy Burke, and she is just sort of saying how she feels. 
and there's lots of different aspects. Uh, the episode this week is about motherhood. Yeah, just lots of different aspects of, of being a woman and some of the things that come out are quite surprising, maybe particularly to men who are watching. But I think a lot of other people certainly watch the first episode looking on social media. They just seem to be like, oh, thank God there's a programme like this being made. I mean, presumably you enjoyed it. Yeah. So the first episode is about body image. The second one's about motherhood. And the third one is about relationships and whether women feel that they need to get married or not. And those are all subjects that I've read a gazillion magazine articles about that people go on and on about. The difference here is having Kathy Burke's voice because she's... So, like you say, refreshing is exactly the word. And, and she frames it all in, in a way that is so much more interesting and so much more thought-provoking as a woman and hopefully for men watching as well. Uh, and she's very honest about the fact that she doesn't want kids. She didn't really want to get married. She has a different view on life than we often hear on TV. And it's just it's a pleasure spending time in her company to start with because she's brilliant and very honest. But I think it does make you think about the issues she's trying to talk about as well. So I really hope it gets a second series because I could honestly sit there for hours listening to her interview people about this kind of thing. Also, some of the interviews are really interesting because she makes people feel really relaxed. I just think it's great. I'm amazed that Channel 4 managed to sign her up to do it. I mean, obviously, it's something she cares about, but I didn't think that she would necessarily be up for this kind of thing. She's busy doing lots of directing, lots of stuff at the theatres. So I think it's a real breath of fresh air. I think you're right. I think they will struggle to get her again. Uh, my understanding is it, it, this was a bit of a one-off. This might be a first and last, which would be a real shame because I think even on other other subjects, people would really like to hear Kathy Burke's voice behind a sort of documentary. She just seems really suited to this format. On this week's episode, uh, she's speaking to Samantha Morton, also the comedian Catherine Ryan we've had on the show before. Uh, but perhaps most interestingly, she speaks to a, a woman in her mid-30s who's having her eggs frozen. She, she's sort of doing very well. She's an executive in the city and she just wants to make that choice. She can afford to pay to make that choice in case she perhaps has a, a relationship later in life and wa- wants to have children. Then the access she's getting and also I think it's just because of who she is. People want to speak to her or they know her from previous sort of things on TV. And it just feels um, very real and uh, sort of not, as you say, there's lots of documentaries or lots of articles about these topics but this really does feel like a new voice certainly a different angle and I, I wouldn't be surprised if this sort of gets nominated for some awards later in the year because she is outspoken without being judgmental which is a very difficult balancing act and she does it really well so we love this definitely check it out on channel four a totally different show to talk about next though with my favorite title i think of any show that i've ever heard of the octopus in my house it is literally about an octopus in a house but tell us more I mean, this is fascinating, but it's also completely crazy. There's this professor, <laughs> David Shield, and he drops in that he's recently um, had, a, had a relationship split, I think a marriage split. And so obviously some people would go out and, you know, they might go on some sort of spending binge or, I don't know, yeah, one night stands or you know, who knows what. But uh, David's sort of reaction to this seems to have been to move an octopus into his living room. <laughs> um, you know, he's got a teenage daughter living there as well, which you think might, you know, she might be a he bit bothered. He tries to blame it on her. And she's like, mm, I wanted a puppy. What is this? Yeah, the daughter, I think, wants either a puppy or a cat. And what she ends up with is this giant octopus, this massive tank that they have to sort of bring in on a crate in the, in the middle, you know, move the sofa around it. I mean, it's quite a crazy setup. Also wondered how sort of, you know, how safe it is for the octopus. But I, he's a professor, so I'm trusting that he knows what he's doing. Let's give her her name. This is Heidi. We're talking about the octopus. Heidi, because she hides a lot at the start. Yeah, um, bad name. Yeah, not a great name. Um, anyway, the idea is to show the, the, the similarities octopus have with, I think, some of our other pets. So they tried to get him to do some tricks and stuff. And it also highlights some of the amazing sort of characteristics that octopus have. So we see it sort of change colour and we get detailed analysis on an octopus, which I suppose <laughs> in the other 
Attenborough programmes, an octopus, I guess, gets like two or three minutes or something. And this is octopus hour, I suppose. It's a real love letter to the octopus. It is. And it, it is really interesting. When I've been sort of snorkeling, I've seen octopus change colour and stuff. And so I find it quite interesting to, to find out more. And also, as I say, the setup is just crazy so you sort of want to watch for that as well I mean what did you think well I mean an octopus doesn't have a skeleton I learned that I suppose I kind of knew that but watching it kind of contort itself through a tube was fascinating that'll stay with me it didn't need to be an hour I felt like half an hour would have been enough to cover what I personally need to know about octopuses not octopi I'm devastated to find out octopuses yeah I mean it wasn't as good as as, it could never have been as good as the title I think I got overexcited by the title this has been there's a website for journalists where we go and watch all this stuff and it's been on the front page every day Uh, so I've been really sort of excited about this and it, it was all right I feel like the title is very much like something I'd expect. Channel 5 doc. Exactly. It's sort of a Channel 5 or a Channel 4 documentary on BBC Two. Uh, so I should say it's Thursday at nine o'clock. But if it was on four or five, it would have the ad breaks. It would be more like 45 minutes. I feel like that would probably be about right because the first 15, 20 minutes, I've sort of just got back off, fallen off my chair to see this is actually a programme. This guy is actually doing this. This is his sort of um, reaction to, to his situation in life. Once you've watched a few facts and figures, you're like, yeah, this is probably, I'm, I'm probably done here. And also the title makes it sound like the octopus is, you know, mixing itself a G&T in your kitchen. Sat on the sofa. Exactly. But it's not, it's just in a tank. Now it's time once again to add to the list of box sets to watch before you die. Each week, one of our favourite faces from the telly tells us a must-see series. Last week, BBC Breakfast Nagamanchetti chose Grey's Anatomy, which she thought was a pretty good choice. This week, it's the turn of comedian and presenter Joel Domit. This is his choice. Hello, everybody. My name is Joel Patrick Domit. The box set I think you will need to watch before you die is Fleabag. You know that feeling when a guy you like sends you a text at two o'clock on a Tuesday night asking if he can come and find you? And then you open the door to him like you've always forgotten he's coming over. Oh. Hi. Hey. Such a good script, so funny, and I really, really love it. Oh my god, definitely not. That does nothing for you. What? These are my clothes, Boo. I've been wearing these all day. It's really not that bad at all. And also, you know, there's not many episodes. There's only six uh, in each series and there's two series. So if you haven't got long to live, it's the perfect box set to watch before you die. How'd you two meet? Oh, I met her on a bus. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy to pick up girls these days. I was like, hi, and she's like, oh, take my number from me. <laughs> it's awesome. So, Fleabag. I mean, did you pay him some money to pick Fleabag just so you could talk about it some more, even though it's not on the telly? I mean, we haven't talked about Fee Waller Bridge for about 20 minutes, so yeah, we had to get it in. I should say that she is back on on stage doing this at the moment. Have you got your front row to see? I am going. I'm very excited. 30 performances at the Wyndham Theatre, all sold out, obviously, but there is a thing you can get tickets on the day. Lottery. Yeah. But also the main news in terms of Fleabag is uh, Phoebe did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter um, last week and she did say she might bring Fleabag back but it would only be when she's 50. Maybe when you know there's been a life lived and it's a different face looking down the barrel. So there is hope for us super fans. There could be a Fleabag Series 3, but we might have to wait about you know, 20 years. She's covered herself there. When the work dries up, she'll be like, oh yeah, I was always going to bring back Fleabag. No, I mean, that would be amazing. I'm sure it'd be brilliant. Good choice, Joel. 
You can catch him hosting ITV2's brand new dating show, Single Town. Will it be as big as Love Island? Well, let's see. It's coming very soon and he's hosting alongside Emily Atak. And there'll be another box set to watch before you die next week. That's almost it for this episode of Series Linked. But I can hear you shouting at your phones and radios saying, but where is the best bit? OK, here it comes. Jeffers, you need to tell us what we're going to be watching next week, next month and next year. Let's start with next week. Next week, there's only really one show to talk about. The Great British Bake Off is Ooh. back August the 27th. Going to have a 13 new contestants, obviously the same crew, Paul Hollywood and co doing, doing the rest of it. I think people really, really look forward to this one. And yeah, it's going to be big again, I'm sure. Baker's dozen of new new contestants. Don't miss out all the puns, Jeffers. This is important. Okay. Right, how about next month? Next month, we've talked about this once or twice before. I think it's a confession. It's the big new ITV drama. It's Martin Freeman. Um, it's all about the serial killer, Christopher Halliwell, and disgraced police officer, Steve Fulcher. Martin is playing Steve Fulcher. It's a big cast. There's lots of new dramas coming out at the moment. We've, we've talked about some great ones today. But I think a confession is going to be really big. And next year? Uh, yeah, I just want to mention London Kills for next year. That's the BBC daytime drama. We had um, Hugo Spearing talking about it a few months back and that's been given a second series. It's going to be on um, early on in 2020. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeffers. And that's all we've got time for. This has been the Series Linked podcast. And before you turn it off, go on, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It would make our day. And make sure you've subscribed as well so that you can catch our Grand Design special with Kevin McLeod next week. For now, though, bye-bye. Cheers. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from, some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.